As you're finding your seats, uh, go ahead and grab a Bible. If you need one, there are some in the back. We're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. If you're using one of the Burgundy Bibles that we provide, that's on page 911, 911. And if you have a device that you're going to be following along, I'm actually going to read it to you from the message translation, and then when we work through it, we'll be looking at the New Living Translation, so you can be prepared for that. We are on in this series that is called One, and the core message and core scripture that we've looked at, I'm actually going to just flip over to it really quickly so I can read it to you, is from Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, it's talking about the unity of the body, and it says to always be humble and gentle. This is verse 2. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. And then the key verse, kind of the theme verse for this whole series, verse 3, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit. United in the Spirit. Binding yourselves together with peace. And as we've explained before, in the body of Christ, which is the way the Bible talks about, one of the ways that the Bible talks about the church, people who have said yes to Christ, who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who are citizens of the kingdom of God, that we are one because we share in that same Holy Spirit. Our unity is a settled fact. But it tells us to make every effort to pour yourselves into, to spare no expense of effort in guarding or protecting the unity of the body. The unity is ours as a gift, but it is our responsibility as followers of Jesus to protect that unity. So that has been an overarching theme. And of course, when uh, last week's message, this week's message is talking about how we as believers can apply our faith to what we do as citizens. And over the course of this election series uh, cycle, probably more than any other, certainly in my remembrance, there has been so much division and divisiveness, and it can and has seeped into the church. So what I want to do today is to apply the command to make every effort to guard the unity of the body to fulfilling our responsibility as citizens. So just as a reminder and refresher, in case uh, you need it or you weren't here last week, uh-oh, um, it is... We, we have talked about whether it's even right to discuss citizenship in the church, to talk about government, to talk about politics. And my premise is that discussing citizenship, even in the church, is, number one, our right as citizens. That it is perfectly appropriate. From When you look at the Constitution, and this is the First Amendment to the Constitution, it says that the, we, they're not going to remake a law, Congress shall not make a law respecting the establishment of religion, and we talked about how that's forcing people to do something a lot with their religion. The government won't compel religion, that it, that nor will it prohibit the free exercise thereof, that we have the right enshrined in our founding documents to exercise our religion. And that doesn't mean just show up at church on Sunday. It means taking our faith and living it out and applying it in every aspect of life, including business, home, education, and in government. And then it says, or abridging the freedom of speech. And we've talked about how churches have been somewhat bullied into silence and the uh, the threat of losing their tax exempt status has been held over them in order to silence them and we have in large part fallen for that 
It is unconstitutional. It's never been tested. And if the reason it's not been tested and prosecuted is, I believe, because they know that they would lose. So it is our right as citizens. But it is also our responsibility, and I'm speaking as a pastor, it's our responsibility as pastors to discuss this. And the way I've described it before is you have a sphere, if you think of a circle, and in that circle are all the things related to citizenship and politics and government. And then you have a sphere over here of the things that, that are my responsibility to talk about as a pastor, items of faith and morality and the way that we apply our faith to life. And those circles definitely do overlap. And so I'm not going into an area that I don't belong in. Politics has crossed over into an area of my responsibility. And so I have a responsibility to speak about this and to apply it. And that is well established in biblical history, in church history, and even in American history. Uh, we looked at this passage. This is the Apostle Paul talking to the church elders at Ephesus, and he, describing his ministry, says, I didn't shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So it's my responsibility to not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God wherever it applies, even in the area of politics. I mentioned to you that it is a well-established tradition in biblical history, in American history, in church history. Let me give you just one example that maybe you haven't thought of or maybe you've recognized it before but not really thought it through, and that is the uh, story of John the Baptist. This, uh, he, it's described in Matthew chapter 14, it says, Herod, now Herod was a king who uh, was over that area where John lived, had arrested and imprisoned John as a favor to his wife Herodias, the former wife of Herod's brother Philip. So what had gone on is the first Herod, this Herod had married but he ended up divorcing that wife uh, and then marrying the ex-wife of his brother, Philip. John had been telling Herod, it's against God's law for you to marry her. He was taking God's law about divorce and also about, uh, according to Old Testament law, the marrying of his brother's wife was a form of incest. So for both of those reasons, John spoke out against what Herod was doing in his personal and private life, I might add. And if you're wondering, that Latin, I believe, for behold the Lamb of God, which is, of course, what John the Baptist said when he saw and right before he baptized Jesus. So you have John speaking out against a political leader for his personal immorality. But he didn't stop there. In the Gospel of Luke, it talks about this as well and says, but when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done. So he didn't limit it to just that particular instance. He was speaking out evidently about a lot of things that Herod had done, and he added to them all that he locked up John in prison. So it is our right as citizens, it is my responsibility as a pastor to address the whole counsel of God and apply it to all of life. Now, the reason, and this is going to be um, kind of one of the foundational reasons why I think it's important for me to address this, is that something has changed. What has changed over the past several years? We can see it in a variety of different ways, but I will give you one example of a survey that was taken. And in this survey, it's a, they, were, they were polling religious believers, people who go to church, 
Evangelicals usually are people who have, say they have accepted Christ. They have a personal relationship with Jesus. And what this chart shows you, I don't expect you to be able to read it. I'll be able to talk you through it. It's, uh, it's describing the difference between 2011, five years ago, and 2016, last month, October, when this question was asked. And the question is basically, does an elected official's personal morality, their personal life, have an impact on whether or not they can or will do a good job in their public life? Does personal character and morality matter? Now you'll see in 2011, or let's say, let me read the way it said, an elected official who commits an immoral act in their personal life can still behave ethically and fulfill their duties in the public and professional life. Now, wherever you might come down on that, what I want you to see is that there has definitely been a shift in the evangelical perspective. For people who say they follow Jesus, people who show up for church, it's in 2011, only 30% of white evangelical Protestants said, yeah, it doesn't really matter what they do in their personal life, they can still do a good job. The overwhelming majority said, no, that really matters. Seven in 10 said, that really matters. Now, last month, that same question was asked, and it's almost completely reversed. Over 70% said, ah, uh, you know, no, that doesn't really matter. Whatever they do in their personal life doesn't impact whether or not they can do a good job in their public life. What changed? Did the Bible have a, an awakening? Is, you know, is there a new scripture that's been added? What has changed with us, because I, I fall into that category, many of you would as well, that we can say now, oh, you know, it doesn't really matter so much. Maybe it used to, but not now. What has changed? Now, I want you to look at the far right. The far right are the unaffiliated. That means these are the, these are the irreligious. These are, these are people who don't show up at church, who don't have any kind of religious affiliation. They are the ones that have remained most consistent. Five years ago, 63% said, nah, it doesn't really matter. Now it's down to 60. So for every 100 evangelicals, 42 of them have changed their mind and said, nah, it doesn't matter what they do in their personal life anymore. But three pagans, ir irreligious, immoral people, have said, you know, I think it actually does matter. Something has, is wrong. Something has changed. And if you were to look at the articles that this survey has precipitated, it would be exactly what you would expect. Everybody looking at the church and say, yeah, they're a bunch of hypocrites. They were all up in arms about it when it wasn't their guy or their gal that was causing the problems. But now that their person, well, they don't really care. They never really meant it. We're being mocked, and perhaps rightly so. So what changed? Well, I can tell you, it was not the Bible. It was not the Bible, it was not Christian doctrine, it was not what constitutes good character, and it was not whether or not a person's character, personal morality, matters in the public sphere. I am going to make the case from the scriptures, and this is your bottom line, that character matters. It matters today, it mattered five years ago, it mattered 500 years ago and 5,000 years ago. When you are choosing people for positions of authority and responsibility, character matters. The theme verse that I put on this with this 
bottom line is one that we looked at last week, Proverbs 29.2. This is the Revised Standard Version, and it says, when the righteous are in authority, righteous, people of good character, people who do right, when they are in positions of authority, the people rejoice. Things go well. People are happy. But when the wicked rule, when a person who doesn't have good character, when a person who is selfish instead of selfless, who uses and leverages their power for their own benefit rather than for the benefit of the people under them, who think that the reason that they have power, authority, and money is to please themselves, when they rule, the people groan. Character matters. Now, you already, because I know, you know I've, I've talked to you, I know you guys, you're on different positions when it comes to the election and what things matter and what things uh, are important and what are not and what you're willing to put up with and what you're not willing to, be put, to put up with. And there are many objections that come up particularly because of the situation that we are facing as a nation and with the options that are available to us, especially when it comes to the presidential election, of course. And so you will hear different op objections, some pushback against this idea of character mattering. Let me just walk through some of them. This is one that I've heard, and maybe you've heard as well, that we are selecting a commander-in-chief, not a pastor-in-chief. In other words, it's wonderful to expect good character from somebody, it's, but we're not electing a Sunday school teacher. We need a leader. We are electing a commander-in-chief. Now, you may believe that, and I understand that those are different roles. However, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you believe the Bible, it's very hard to find biblical support for this distinction and this diversion, this separation of views. It's unheard of in the Bible. Now you have to remember that most people in history and therefore also most of the Bible was written to people who did not have a choice about the rulers that were placed over them. However, there are instances in the scriptures where we are given some insight and direction in choosing if we do have a choice. Let's look at what Moses said in Deuteronomy. It says to appoint judges and officials, these are secular positions, these are government positions, for each of your tribes in every town the Lord your God has given you, and they shall judge the people fairly. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe. Follow justice and justice alone. In other words, when you're choosing and appointing leaders, even in the secular realm, you need to, uh, to choose people who will do right, for whom they, 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 they are going to demonstrate and exemplify good character. That's what it says. Then we also looked at Proverbs 14.34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. And then this is the message translation for the verse that we looked at earlier. When good people run things, everyone is glad, but when the ruler is bad, everyone groans. Now, this is an important part of our responsibility. When we have a choice, that means that it's our responsibility. And one of the ways that we can love our neighbor is when we put people in positions of authority to choose people who are going to do right and who are righteous, because that will be an expression of our love. If we put people in positions of authority and power who are not righteous, we are not loving our neighbor. When the ruler is bad, everyone groans. Here's another one. Nobody's perfect. God has used flawed people previously. Therefore, it's okay if the leader that we put in place is flawed, if he has some issues or if she's done some things. Absolutely everybody is flawed. One of my guiding principles is to not sacrifice the good 
on the altar of the perfect when it comes to electing uh, an official. However, what this can turn into and what I've seen it turn into is a justification and an excusing of poor behavior. One of the prime examples that I've heard used is King David. King David, of course, was described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. And yet, especially if you did your growth guide last week, we see that he was an adulterer and a murderer. And yet, he was God's chosen, and God used him. So absolutely, the whole premise of the gospel is that God can turn people's lives around, that nobody is beyond hope and help. However, there is a distinction between understanding that and placing unrepentant, evil, wicked people in positions of authority. Let me just, if you'll forgive me for unpacking this word, we're going we're gonna to unpack the example of David. Okay, David was already in a position of authority when he made his, when he had his fall. And the people did not place him in a position of authority. God did. The people did not choose to place a known murderer and adulterer in that role. And it was not without consequences because as a result of that, God's judgment was poured out on David and his family and the people, the nation, suffered as a result. There was nearly a civil war. There was turmoil in the leadership of the nation for a very long time, even to his succession, because and rooted in David's sin. Another thing that I would point out is that David was obviously and immediately repentant. We looked at Psalm 51 where he says, wash me clean from my guilt. I just want you to listen to the heart behind this. Purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. He was repentant and having him in his position of authority was not without its cost. Likewise, I have heard, aren't we supposed to forgive and not judge? We're, we're, we're supposed to forgive people. We're supposed to not judge them. Yes, they've made, but, but we're supposed to forgive. Well, yes, we are supposed to forgive as we have been forgiven. We are not supposed to condemn, which is what, the, what judge means in this context. However, however, we are not told that we should place people in positions of authority who are immoral or show bad character. Even within the church, we are encouraged to pass judgment on behaviors and to adapt to the person accordingly. Don't believe me? Let me give you an example. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. The Apostle Paul writing to the church about a believer, a brother who has been sinning and what they are supposed to do about it. He says, I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard, drunkard or swindler, do not even eat with such people. In other words, if you've got somebody who claims to be a brother or a sister, but they are obviously have a pattern of bad character in their life, it's okay to say, no, that doesn't belong, and you don't belong until you get this worked out. The idea of not eating with is an adaption. It is, it is a adoption of fellowship. It is an expression of fellowship. It's saying he's one of us. She's with us. She's in good standing with us. And the Apostle Paul is saying, no, you can't do that. You have to make a distinction for people who are in obvious immorality and are unrepentant. So, Yes, we don't judge people. We don't condemn them and say there's no hope for you and we hate you and, we, uh, and you might as well just go to hell. That is not what, what we do. But we don't 
elevate people and put someone who is obviously a bad character in a position of authority. That is not what it's saying when it says to forgive and not judge. So, with those in mind, I want to now look at the scripture and then we'll apply it in particular. Now, what I want to do is read this passage. It's one of two particular passages that talk about leadership in the church. And I'm going to read it to you in the message translation, or at least I hope I am. I had it all set and ready to go, and once again, technology has failed me. Uh, <clears throat> here we go. So I want, if you want to follow along, it is the message translation of 1 Timothy chapter 3, but perhaps it's better just to listen to it because one of the reasons that I chose this particular passage and this particular translation is the sound. It, 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 it's very understandable, and you can apply it, and you can, you can relate to it. Now, it is speaking to people who are aspiring to leadership in the church, but as we've said, good character is good character in or outside of the church. And these are, one of the, these are some of the best passages that talk about what the Bible describes as good character. What the people who were following Jesus were looking for in their leaders and positions of authority. This is what it says. If anyone wants to provide leadership in the church, good. But there are preconditions. A leader must be well thought of committed to his wife, cool and collected, accessible and hospitable. He must know what he's talking about, not be overfond of wine, not pushy but gentle, not thin-skinned, not money-hungry. He must handle his own affairs well, attentive to his own children and having their respect. For if someone is unable to handle his own affairs, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a new believer, lest the position go to his head and the devil trip him up. Outsiders must think well of him, or else the devil will figure out a way to lure him into his trap. The same goes for those who want to be servants in the church. Serious, not deceitful, not too free with the bottle, not in it for what they can get out of it. They must be reverent before the mystery of faith, not using their position to try to run things. Let them prove themselves first. If they show they can do it, take them on. No exceptions would be made for women, same qualifications, serious, dependable, not sharp-tongued, not overfond of wine. Servants in the church are to be committed to their spouses, attentive to their own children, and diligent in looking after their own affairs. Those who do this servant work will come to be highly respected, a real credit to this Jesus faith. So, you get the feel don't you, from listening to that, of what we should be looking for in leaders. And in the New Living Translation, I'll just go through and highlight a couple of things that are related to that. A couple of things related to that. The summary statement begins in the very beginning, where it says that an elder, that's the translation in in the New Living Translation, an elder must be a man whose life is above reproach. In other words, this is a person of good character. That is the thematic statement, and everything that he says after that are bullet points in that. It's a person of good character, a person whose life is unimpeachable. And then he talks about how what that looks like. And he talks about faithfulness to his wife or to his spouse. And what I want to do as we walk through a couple of these things is just to ask the question, why? Why would this be included? Why would, why would when you're looking for somebody who's going to be a leader, would you want that faithfulness in that relationship to be there? Well, Obviously, because fidelity in that relationship, you would think, would transfer over into fidelity in other relationships. A person who keeps his promises in that is likely, perhaps more likely, to keep their promises in other things. And a person for whom that is not the case, who is promiscuous or is not faithful to his wife, is going to be questionable in other areas as well. 
So that, I think, is one of the main reasons why that's the case. It's not so that people will look and say, oh, what a good little person, what a goody two-shoes it is. All he is, all of these things are, have practical concerns. That if you're going to put a person in a position of leadership, these are practical considerations that give you insight into who this person is, what their character is like. And we ignore those insights to our peril. So it goes on, exercising self-control. It's saying they need to be self-controlled and then they emphasize, it's emphasized by not being a drunkard, that's mentioned several times, not being somebody who is a, an anger-driven person, somebody who is quick to get into fights, quick to have their temper flare. Why? Again, why? Why is this an important thing? Well, it's important for a person who has authority to be self-controlled and in possession of themselves, not allowing these outside influences or, or destructive emotions to be in control. So that's there. Then there's a lot about managing his own family well, having children that respect him. Again, it's going back to, let's look at this person and see their record and the things that they've done. And let's see if that and is going to suggest that it's a good idea to give them more power and more responsibility. In this case, pastoring is so much like fathering. And we don't call pastors father like they do in other traditions, but one of the things I appreciate is it's very much like it's a parental, a caring, nurturing type of role. And if you do well at managing that, then you're likely to do well at managing these other things. So it's saying, look at the person's history. What, what, what can you parallel to this? And then that will be your best indication of how well they will do in the future. The other thing that the one, uh, you'll notice that all of these things are character qualities with very few exceptions. And one of those is the ability to teach. Not being a new convert, being able to, in the Titus passage that we'll look at during the week, it says able to teach correct doctrine and also refute those who go in error. Why, is, why are all these things important? Because they want the person who's leading it to have infused and incul have in, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Help me out. In, in what's that? Inculcated is a good word. I wasn't going to try that one without being familiar with it. But the, uh, internalized, that's the word I was thinking of. Uh, to have internalized these things. To internalize them. Not, not somebody who's just new to this, but somebody who's internalized. Somebody that can explain it well. So again, all of these things are primarily character things, and they give us insight into what's next and whether or not they should be given additional authority. Now, I'm running blind here because, once again, my technology has, uh, has failed me. But let's take this, and as we bring this to a conclusion, uh, make some applications. Since character does matter, hopefully we can all agree on that. Character matters. It doesn't change it doesn't become less important depending on who our, our favorite of the, of the season is. Character matters. Since character matters, we can't be fooled by rhetoric. We must believe the record. This is a, a, an undercurrent in everything that, these, the, the, that we're being told about leadership, is to look at the person, what have they done, what, what, what's their past? Oh, is it, does it demonstrate good character or poor character? And that will be your best indication about what they will do next. Not what they say. Not the plan on their website. I, I was getting so frustrated listening to some debates, of all, not just uh, presidential debates, but everybody was saying, well, I've got a plan for this. Well, I've got a plan for this. Go to my website and look at my plan for this. I really, at this point, at this age and stage that I'm at, I don't really care what their plans are. Because, 
It's just a, a, a very small indicator into what's going to happen because those plans are never going to survive past the election. They might have great ideas, but what are the, what are the principles that they're committed to? What, what is their character? That, because you don't know what you're going to face in the future, but your character is your destiny. Your character will tell me how you're going to respond and what you're going to do in the future. So I really don't care so much what they say and what they say they'll do. I care far more about what they've done in the past and then I can draw a straight line to the future and have a much better indication of what a person is going to do. Don't be fooled by rhetoric. Look at their past behavior. That's the best indication for what you can expect in the future. This is also a biblical principle as well. It, in James chapter 2, verse 18, says, how can you show me your faith? What Faith, belief, trust, all these are the same word in the New Testament. You want, I, you want to show me what you believe, but you don't have good deeds? Well, I will show you my faith, what I truly believe, by my good deeds, by my record. I look at my past, you'll have a best indication of what I truly believe and what I will truly do. But like we said, even people who are irreligious, people, uh, this, is, this is common. I love the way that Maya Angelou puts it. It's, she says, she's a, an author, a professor, a poet, when someone shows you, I want to do, I'm not very good at this, but this is a little bit like she sounds like, when someone shows you who they are, believe them the first time. When someone shows you who they are, believe them the first time. People in your life, people in the political arena are screaming into your ear, this is what I'm like by their behaviors, by their past. Believe them. Believe them. So, record, not rhetoric. Secondly, don't enable or defend evil. Speak out against what's wrong wherever it has found, wherever it's found. Please, let's not sully the name of Christ by defending the indefensible and shifting what we believe and shifting away from what is right because of partisan favoritism. You're making, we are making fools of ourselves and destroying our witness when we do that. And perhaps one of the best things that will come out of this election cycle is that hopefully, maybe, the people of God, the church of God, will be liberated from an allegiance to a particular part, party or philosophy and feel the freedom to say, yes, that's right and good, or no, that's wrong and evil, wherever we find it, wherever we find it. Please do not enable or defend evil. And let's be honest about that. When we are twisting ourselves into pretzels to excuse behavior, let's think about that for just a second. Why are we doing that? And is that really being full of integrity? Noah Webster said, in selecting men for office, let principle be your guide. Look to his or her character. When a citizen gives his suffrage, that's another word for voting, you might probably know that, to a man of known immorality or woman, he abuses his trust. He sacrifices not only his own interest, but that of his neighbor. In other words, it's not loving to your neighbor when you do this. He betrays the interest of his country character, right and wrong, not record, not rhetoric. And this actually made me think of, at the very beginning of this series, we looked at Second John, and there was a parallel in that passage. 
in 2 John chapter 1, verses 10 to 11, it's talking about false teachers coming into the church. And it says, if anyone comes to your meeting and does not teach the truth about Christ, don't invite that person into your home or give any kind of encouragement. Anyone who encourages such people becomes a partner in their evil work. He's saying in the church, if you've got false teachers and you give them a place to stay and an opportunity to, to promote their false teaching, you are complicit in their evil work. Don't do that. So to what degree, when we place an evil person, a person of known bad character in a position of authority, do we have responsibility for that? And I know what you're saying, the choices are limited, and I absolutely agree and understand that. However, at some point, we have to draw a line because as long as we continue to accept the same thing and then worse and worse and worse and continue to reward that with our vote, then eventually we're just plumbing the depths and scraping the bottom of the barrel. Because then the people in authority know whoever we put out there, as long as they have the right letter beside their name, we can count on a great level of support. They'll take anyone. And in our system of government, who are the leaders? Who are the people who are in authority? Who are the sovereigns in our system of government? You and me by our vote. You and me by our vote. And so if we don't like the options that we've been given, it's because we are responsible. We have allowed it, put up with it, and encouraged it. At what point do we say, no more, no more? So we have to figure out at what point does accepting this situation make us complicit in what's going on? And then lastly, the application is, Again, to not violate your conscience. To do what's right and trust the results to God. To do what's right and trust the results to God. Last week, we looked at um, this passage. If you have doubts about whether or not you should or shouldn't, you are sinning if you go ahead and do it. If you're not following your convictions, if you do anything that you believe, you believe is not right, you are sinning. If you're... When, when we were talking about this in our growth group during the week, uh, it reminded me of a bottom line from another message from another pastor that I heard, and it was this, and it seemed to resonate, so I'll share it with you as well. To pay attention to the tension. Pay attention to the tension. In other words, if you're feeling that anxiety, that, intention, that tension about a choice that you're about to make, you should probably pause and pay attention to that. Why do I feel that tension? Why, why is it hard for me? Why am I talking myself into it? Why is it taking a long time for me to talk myself into it? Why am I shifting back and forth? Well, perhaps that tension is there for a reason. And you are talking yourself, because that's what evidently 42 out of 100 evangelical white Christians have done, is talk themselves into a different position based on what? Based on what? So it's incumbent upon us to pay attention to the tension. We just celebrated Reformation Day, November 1st, which was the day that Martin Luther posted the 95 Theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg when he was called in a trial before the Catholic Church and in, encouraged at great cost to himself to recant these positions and to come back into the fold, this is part of what he said. My conscience is captive to the word of God. Thus I cannot and will not recant. Because, why? Because acting against one con one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. Acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. So, whatever choices we make, let's not compromise on this core biblical worldview perspective that character matters. Let's speak honestly 
and with integrity and with justice, a blind justice against what is wrong and for what is right. And each one of us is going to have to make a choice about what we do and to do so in such a way that promotes the good and guards our conscience as well. Now, all of, it's likely that we are going to come down in different places on Tuesday, November the 8th. However, it is very important for us as the body of Christ that on Wednesday, November 9th and beyond that we are united in Christ, sticking to scriptural, biblical worldview and principles, and that we do everything necessary and possible to guard the unity of the body. This is actually not a new problem. This is a problem that existed even in the time of Jesus and even among his own disciples. And I'll wrap up with this because I think it gives us the solution to our problem as well. Within the disciples of Jesus, you have a man named Levi, also known as Matthew, who was a tax collector. Jesus called him while he was sitting at his tax collector table. Here's what it meant for, G for Matthew as a Jew to be a tax collector. It meant that politically he was aligned with the occupying Roman force. Many, in fact, probably most of his fellow citizens would have looked at him as a traitor and a sellout because he was working for the Roman government, collecting taxes for them, and also enriching himself in all likelihood at the cost of his fellow citizens. He would have been despised for this by many people, a sellout, a person who had collaborated with the enemy. Lesser known was a Simon, now, this is not Simon Peter. He's very well known. But this Simon, in order to distinguish him from the better known Simon Peter, is named Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot. He's zealous. Well, what does that mean? Well, actually, zealots were a political party. They were a revolutionary, radical political party. They wanted to completely overthrow the Roman government. They wanted to see Rome kicked out of Jerusalem, self-rule restored, and they were willing to go to violent measures in order to make it happen. And periodically, revolutionaries would arise among the, this and other zealous parties. And eventually... They, one of these revolutions turned in, ended up being brutally quashed by the Roman government, and that's what resulted in the destruction of the temple and the expulsion of Jews from the city of Jerusalem eventually. So here you have these two guys who in any other circumstance, if they had been in the same room with one another, it would have easily come to blows. They were opposites. They, by party affiliation, would have hated one another. And yet, they are listed alongside one another within the disciples of Jesus. And that's the key. That's the key. Jesus was their king. Their primary allegiance was to Christ. And I'm not sure how it worked out, but we do know that whatever differences they had, whatever way they looked at each other before, 
they were able to come together in Christ, in his family, and in his kingdom because that was their primary allegiance. That was their primary allegiance. And whatever might happen in the political and geopolitical realm, that one thing was settled. Not to say those things aren't important. Remember John the Baptist. But that one thing was settled. I am first a follower of Jesus. My citizenship is in the kingdom of God. And I am a foreigner and a sojourner in this present world. Now, we have some responsibilities. We have some choices to make. One of the ways that you can be okay Tuesday and beyond is by remembering that Christ is still on his throne and our primary allegiance is to him. The second is to trust a sovereign, ruling, reigning Christ who has sent his Holy Spirit into each and every believer that even if you as my brother, you as my sister, vote or have a different take on this than I do, I can allow you to vote your conscience because I trust that Christ is in control of you and of what happens in our world today. There are important choices to make. I encourage you to do your homework. I encourage you not to violate your conscience and not to, not to beclown the name of Christ by defending and even enabling evil and wrong. But whatever happens, we are going to be one because Christ is our king and we cannot lose sight of that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, how this season in our country has been a clarifying and revealing experience. And Lord, I pray that as a result of what you do in and through your people, that you will receive glory and honor and that good things will happen. I pray that you would give each person here the wisdom to know how to apply what they've heard today. That where conviction and change should happen, it will happen. I pray, Lord, that you will give each of us the courage and grace to do the right thing and to do it boldly. I pray that you would help us to guard and protect the unity of the body and also to stand for and promote the good, righteousness, holiness, to not compromise our witness for the sake of this world. Lord, I also pray that you would help us to love and trust our brothers and sisters. And that we would be known, as you said your disciples would be known, by our love for one another. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a great week. Next week we'll come together and we'll finish the one series talking about how we are one team. It'll be encouraging and you're probably going to need it after this week. So have a great week. I love you guys and I'll see you next Sunday. We are the people of God The sons and the daughters of love Forgiven, restored and redeemed Living our to the praise of our King.